Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. All right, welcome to another episode on this ongoing series on homesteading. Now in this session, I reached out to John Moody, the author of many books including DIY Sourdough, The Elderberry Book, and the one that we'll be focusing on today, The Frugal Homesteader. John is also the founder of The Whole Life Services and Whole Life Buying Club, and is the former executive director of the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. Like many of the people interviewed in this series, John decided to take a major transition in his lifestyle when he discovered that his diet was literally killing him with duodenal ulcers, seasonal allergies, and other health problems. So he and his growing family began to transition to real local foods and local food distribution, and eventually a life on a homestead on 35 acres in rural Kentucky. Since then, he has become a well-known speaker at conferences, events, and media, including Mother Earth News, Wise Traditions, and others. Now, in this interview, we focus on the many creative ideas that he covers in the book, The Frugal Homesteader. More than just a list of tips and tricks, John promotes a mindset of resourcefulness and problem solving that is based on long-term thinking and looking at the bigger picture. We cover a lot of real examples from his own experiences in setting up a homestead for the first time and both successes and failures that led to great solutions. The best part is that listeners of this show will have the opportunity to win a free copy of John's book, The Frugal Homesteader, and here's how it works. Just leave a review of the Abundant Edge podcast on iTunes and take a screenshot of your review. Send it to info at AbundantEdge.com along with the address where you'd like to receive your mail, and I'll send the book to the first person that I receive an email from. Now, if you live outside of the U.S. or Canada, you can just send the email and we'll send you a digital copy. And if you don't win this time, don't worry. I'll be giving away a ton of books from New Society Publishers this season, so stay tuned each week for your chance to win more books. Now, if you've already left a review on iTunes, you can share this episode on your preferred social media platform, Take a screenshot and send an email just the same. These steps really help us to reach a larger audience with this information and message of actionable steps that anyone can take towards ecological regeneration, so I really appreciate all of you who've been helping me to get the word out. I'll be looking forward to your emails and sending those books out soon. Now I'll hand things over to John. Hey John, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. How you doing, man? Good. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. It sounds like from our little chat before this, we've both been working outside quite a bit today. You're chopping up a bunch of wood for use of fires and stuff later? Yeah, we're just, um, we had our property selectively logged this past fall. And so now we're going back through and cleaning up all the leftover wood. You know, some of it's going to go to firewood, some of it's going to go to crafting, Um, Some of it's going to go to soil building. And then there's, you know, some of the areas we had them log, I'm inspecting, and then we're going to get them overseeded to transition some of our um, kind of semi-productive woodland to hopefully more productive silvo pasture type land. 
Hey, that's exciting. And if I remember correctly, you're on 35 acres? Yeah, roughly. I think that's okay. about right. Um, so what was the motivation for, for having it selectively logged like this? Uh, are you able to generate some money this way, or is it just like a larger part of the plan to transition it towards silvopasture? Well, it was, um, you know, when I do consulting work with people who want a farm or homestead, I always talk about like stacking goals and functions. Um, so we had some trees that either had disease or lightning strike or here in the States, uh, we have a problem with something called the emerald ash borer. Mm -hmm. um, so had a part of the farm that had some really good trees that if we let them sit another five to 10 years, they were no longer going to be good trees. Um, so it was, and it was part of the farm as well that I really wanted to open up some access to in terms of expanding the pasture land. Um, you know, so basically it was just, it was a number of different things coming together where it makes sense financially to get some of these trees taken down right now. It makes sense ecologically that if you can find, you know, a responsible logger to work with, um, you, you know, everything's going to benefit once we finally finish all the parts and pieces. Very interesting. That sounds like a really cool project. I'm interested to see how this uh, continues to move forward. But before we go into more of the details about your situation, why don't you give us an idea of your background? Because you did not start out homesteading. How did you go from the lifestyle that you led growing up to, uh, well, give me the, the steps into how you got into homesteading. From the beginning. Yeah, I'm a, yeah, I'll give you the I'll give you like the Cliff Notes version. It would have to be, right? It's a long story. It is a long story. You know, basically I grew up um just off of the edge of being an inner city kid in the lower west side of Youngstown, Ohio. Um I moved to Kentucky in 2000 for seminary. And while I was in seminary, I became incredibly ill. Now, I had always had health problems growing up. Um, but, you know, most Americans, if you have seasonal allergies and dental decay and you're on antibiotics and a couple other pharmaceuticals a few times a year, that's how the average American defines health. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty, he I'm pretty, pretty healthy. Wild. Yeah. It, it's madness. It's a very you know? low bar. Yeah. You know, so... um. So I thought I was, I thought, you know, overall, I'm pretty healthy. I played sports. I was pretty active. Yeah, I had enough, you know, dental work done in my mouth as a child to qualify as an Exxon drilling rig. And I had enough antibiotics to be my own confinement animal feeding operation. But, but I'm healthy. You, you know? Yeah. Um, and then I developed duodenal ulcers when I was about like 23 or so. Um, and so duodenal ulcers are basically just like you're getting ripped apart from the inside out, just constant debilitating pain. And um, through that and some other influences, um, instead of going the route of pharmaceuticals and surgeries, me and my then fiance, now my wife, we completely rethought um, 
you know, our, our entire approach to food, which also then bled over in our approach to lifestyle, which eventually just like gobbled up everything. <laughs> wow. Uh, you know, so so we were like the shopping at Walmart, shopping at Sam's Club, um, you know, eating at Wendy's to, you know, now we live on 35 acres and we home birthed all of our kids. <laughs> like, like we went all we went about as far down the rabbit hole as you can possibly go. Yeah, that's a major transition. And like even though you see it from a different perspective now, I'm sure a lot of listeners can relate to that situation that you came from as well. What kind of informed, I mean, other than improving your health and maybe wanting a different experience for your children, how did you come to that decision to, to go kind of from zero to sprinting on a, a fairly undeveloped piece of land in Kentucky? I think insanity. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, well, so um, after my health crisis, I founded a, a local foods buying club in Louisville, Kentucky called Louisville Whole Life. Because I, I began to realize that like the kind of food that would build my health, you can't really find in grocery stores. Um, you know, especially this would have been back in like 2004, 2005. Mm -hmm. um and so grocery stores in the states were a completely different world um because this is you know pre-omnivores dilemma and so much else that we saw happen you know just before 2010 and and you know like the explosion of organics and other things that's really happened from 2010 to 2020 so a, a lot of the things I wanted, I couldn't find in store. So I founded this local foods buying club. And then when I would go to farmers markets or other places and try and find suppliers for some of the things we wanted, at times I just had farmers tell me, well, that's impossible. You know, you, you can't raise beef without feeding it grain. You can't raise, you know, you can't grow apples without spraying them with a hundred different chemicals. And I was just like, okay, I'm going to find out if what you're saying is true. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's just like, I, I don't really have a way to figure out if what you're saying is legit. So I'm going to have to have land to see if what you're saying is accurate. And but it does we'll seem find out counterintuitive right. when you hear advice like that, right? Because it's a very recent transition into doing things the mechanical and industrial way as far as like the history of humanity and farming. And there's something that always, I think usually doesn't sit right with people when they hear that it's the only way to do things anymore. Oh yeah. Well, and you know, I live in a fairly rural area of Kentucky, um, have some really great neighbors. So I don't say this in any way to pick on my neighbors, but when some of them, basically say to me well this is how my dad and my granddad did it i'm like that's great but that's basically 100 years out of thousands of years of agricultural history right right so, so um and, and the previous years have a better track record than the current years <laughs> certainly so certainly. Uh, 
and, you know, and I don't blame them because a lot of the bad agricultural practices in America were really driven by, you know, experts who were not experts in any meaningful sense of the word. Um, you know, basically doing large-scale experiments across the entire U.S. ecosystems. So, but, but but that's a big topic for another. another yeah, interview. yeah, that's another <laughs> rabbit hole we could go down for an entire episode. But so look, so let's focus a little bit on the lifestyle of homesteading. Like anyone who's done any research on homesteading and especially looking into starting one from scratch will know that there's like a ton of infrastructure, equipment and materials that eventually you're going to need if you need to make things run smoothly and efficiently. So obviously it depends on the enterprises and the lifestyle that you're aiming for, but the list can be super daunting, especially if you're working with a really small budget. So before we jump into all the money-saving tips and advice from your book, The Frugal Homesteader, tell me about your own homestead and what systems and enterprises you've attempted for yourself and your family. Oh, I mean, we've raised pigs, chickens, turkeys, ducks, rabbits. Um, you know, we, we, we've done a tremendous variety of things over the decade we've been here. Um, and, you know, currently, um, you know, the main things we focus on at this point in time are we raise a limited number of pigs each year, um, you know, usually four to eight. Um, we do a fair bit of um, vegetable production. So we have a high tunnel, um, you know, which is basically like a modified type of greenhouse. Um, and... So we have both, you know, uh, you know, temperature, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, you know, season extended growing space, and then we have right. field growing space. Um, and then we have an elderberry syrup business, um, which we started about three years ago and is now really kind of a major part of the financial side of the, you know, farm homestead operation. Oh, very cool. And so within those systems, where would you say you are at or maybe even still aiming for as far as self-sufficiency and generating most of what you consume if that's one of your major goals? Yeah, you know, um, we're actually in the process of probably moving to a different property. Okay. Um, and so, you know, one thing I always say to people, I wish I would have known before we would have purchased our land, um, but fencing it, it, fencing is like so expensive in the States now. Hmm. Uh, and so our entire property needs fenced. Um, Cause you know, a lot of our neighbors don't keep animals anymore. Um, you know, cause the piece of property we're on used to be like a two or 300 acre farm that just slowly has been cut up into five acre pieces, 10 acre pieces and so you have a lot of people that live, live out here, uh, but they work, you know, in town somewhere else. So all the fencing has basically rotted to, you know, you know, rotted wood and rust along yeah. the property lines. Just doesn't work and, anymore. Yeah. And so like everything needs refenced. And for us to refence the property, it would cost us around easily probably fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. 
Yeah, that's a hit. And, you know, that's not something that's paying you back very quickly either. Well, and, and really, like, it's, I don't know if you'd ever fully recoup that investment. Right, um, right. So, so, so fencing, you know, like, we don't have a tractor. Um, I, I think the only mechanized equipment I have is chainsaw and log splitter. Mm, mm. Um, so we don't have a tractor. I'm getting ready most likely to sell my farm truck because I so rarely use it. Well, that's um, a good position to be in. <laughs> and, and so, you know, like um, infrastructure matters far more than equipment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, because if you have really great infrastructure and a well-designed homestead, you're not going to need all kinds of equipment. Um, and at least, you know, in, in a lot of parts of the United States, um, if you do need equipment, you know, I have neighbors who probably have eight or nine tractors. <laughs> Whoa. You know, because, you know, they're big farm. They're very operations. specialty operation yeah. machines. You, yeah. you know, or, or they've just been collecting tractors for three generations. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. They don't um, have any resale value and they just end up collecting them. Yeah. You know, for whatever reason. So it's just like, um, you know, as I talk about in the book, because people are like, well, how do you raise pigs? How are you going to raise pigs and not even have a truck? You know, mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I pick the piglets up in my minivan. <laughs> like um you know i take one of those ibc totes yeah yep. I, I, I cut it up and it fits perfectly in the back of a minivan or most suvs mm-hmm. so you're not going to damage your vehicle and stuff and then when it so that's how i get the piglets to the farm and then when i need to get them off the farm i mean i know so many people who like are hauling animals anyway so instead of me spending all that money on a truck and insurance for a truck and a trailer and, you know, tags for a trailer and tires for the trailer and having to store the trailer and, you know, then all the time and gas to haul the pigs to the butcher and bring it, you know, like I just find somebody who already is doing it. Yeah. 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 And I mean, so as we're getting into talking about the book and some of your tips and tricks for saving money, what would you say is kind of your guiding principle of what you look for to, to get ideas about how things can be accomplished in other ways than just buying new stuff? Oh, so how, what do I look for? Or what, maybe uh, what's the mentality that you would, you would hope someone would cultivate to see that it's not a matter of just buying everything you need. There's other ways to accomplish those goals. Yeah, I think you have to view the world through a lens of creativity rather than consumerism. You know, so like but most Americans, maybe not most Americans, but, but a lot of people, their general approach to a problem is a purchase. Yeah. You know, like if I'm stressed out, I need to purchase a vacation or, or something or a loco mate, latte, moco cap, you know, like whatever. <laughs> Uh, you know, so so most people um, think they can buy their way to success, and you really need to think your way to success. Yeah, and yeah. on occasion that will involve buying stuff. Um, 
you know, but like my wife about six months ago, um, because we were having a hard time managing the in, inside portion of our homestead because we got five kids and we have a couple different businesses and we homeschool. Um, she's basically gotten rid of over half of our possessions over the past six months. Wow. And, and we're talking like, we're, we're, we're talking like every category, even furniture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has really made, you, you know, like less stuff has made us life so much easier and making us so much more successful. <laughs> yeah, no, I believe it. I've gone through transitions like that. I mean, most of my uh, early years when I was traveling a lot, everything I had was in a backpack. And the options that that alone opens up, like I would never have been able to do half of the things that I did without having that kind of uh, that kind of opportunity to to reduce and just live minimally. Um, so, look, the the focus of the book is frugal homesteading, but in from the very beginning, you recommend saving up and getting some of the highest quality items possible. How does that fit into kind of an overall frugal mindset? Oh, because um, you'll never regret buying quality for core items that you're going to need on your homestead. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's actually far cheaper, you know, because especially like living out in a rural area, if something does break on you, um, you know, like if a tool fails or something else fails you, um, I, I'm looking at sometimes basically losing half a day to go to a place where I can get it fixed or get a replacement. Right. And, and so, um, you know, I never, it, it, there's just some areas where cutting corners and costs is not going to long-term actually save you money or time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite uh, pieces of advice on that um, is that like people are too poor to buy cheap things. <laughs> and it completely yeah. switches the narrative of like, oh, I need to save money. I'll just get you know this thing temporarily. And you start to think about how much you actually lose in the long run for not just waiting taking more time with your purchases, getting something of higher quality with a good guarantee on it, a good track record, knowing that you're going to use it a lot and you actually end up saving a lot in the long run. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about this concept that you've mentioned in the book as well, penny wise and pound foolish. Give me an example of where that's, that's come up because obviously you can go too far with the frugality and it stops being, it stops being logical. Yeah, well, you know, there's, um, I've seen tons of examples over the years, but one of my most favorite ones that was just fascinatingly absurd to me is um, we got, we get milk, you know, from a raw milk farmer. Um, And eventually this farmer started delivering to some buying clubs in some of the cities where he had a lot of customers. And because the farmer was delivering to these buying clubs, the milk cost a little bit more. Um, you know, it's like if you went to the farm to pick it up, let's say it'd be like five bucks a gallon. And if you grabbed it at the buying club, it'd be six fifty or seven dollars a gallon. And so there is this lady who 
um, was only like five or 10 minutes from one of the buying clubs, but about 45 minutes from the farm. And she kept going to the farm to pick up. And eventually somebody asked her like, why, why, why are you still picking up milk at the farm? You can just grab it at the buying club. And the lady's like, do you see how much more expensive it is? <laughs> and I'm just sitting here going like, has anyone done any basic math with you in your entire life? <laughs> so, you know, because I'm like, you know, even if you're getting three gallons of milk, you're saving $6 at the cost of 90 miles of wear and tear on your vehicle and two hours of your time like so is, is and your the time gas. and the gas oh, oh, yeah. too yeah oh yeah like like um you know so you really you have to develop good thinking skills yeah to, to yeah. be able to make like good frugal decisions mm-hmm. um, yeah it's not always just the savings for the sake of savings you have to look at the larger picture and if the way that you're saving is actually worth the things that it costs to, to go out of your way or, or whatever else it might be. Yeah. You know, or like on a, on a, there's a number of homesteading Facebook groups I'm a part of, and they were recently having a discussion about, you know, if you, if you had $5,000, um, what would you do with it? And I'd say probably like 70% of the answers were, Oh, I would just pay off debt with with you know just like pay off any debt you possibly can because mm. that'll get you as close to freedom as possible and i just responded and i was just like it just really depends you know because like right now at least in the states um mortgage interest rates i think are down near three percent um you know the the rate of interest on a mortgage is basically almost equal to inflation. Yeah. You know, so like it costs you almost nothing to borrow money, like to have your land and property. So if that $5,000 is going to let you start a business that generates $20,000 a year in income or something, like then using that $5,000 to pay off debt is not the smartest thing to do with that $5,000. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you, you know, so, so people like simple answers that don't require them to do a lot of mental legwork. Yeah, they want answers. So when they ask you a question, the answer is not, it depends. And then you have to clarify all the situations and, and really do the research required to make a good choice. Yeah. And, and so I know I irritate people because <laughs> when I'm speaking at conferences, um, I, I, I very rarely give an unqualified answer to a complicated question. <laughs> right. It's irresponsible at a certain point. Yeah. Well, you know, one of my favorite lines in um, The Lord of the Rings is Samwise Gamgee, I believe, is asking an elf for advice. And the elf responds that um, seldom do the elves give advice. Because even the counsel of the wise can go horribly wrong. Mm. <laughs> you know, so, so it's just like, you know, um, 
Because people want other people to make decisions for them. Sure. And I totally understand it. I mean, I have those tendencies too. It's hard to constantly be making those difficult decisions because you have to live with the responsibility that you came up with it too. Yeah. And so, you know, that's another thing. If you want to succeed as a homesteader, you, you have to develop the attitude that the buck stops with you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, at, at the end of the day, you can't blame the person on YouTube or the article you read. Um, you, you really have to own your decisions yeah. and real and real, you know, like, cause I've made homesteading mistakes. There's things I wish I would have known better, um, or done differently. And unless you're really willing to own them, you're never going to grow. And if you don't grow, you're never going to reach your goals. And I mean, you, at a certain point, you just have to accept that that's part of the journey too. Nobody goes through a big project undertaking without experience and does it without mistakes. Even the people who have tons of experience are constantly making mistakes and learning from them. And to avoid that part of the process, I mean, of course, you don't want to go into it purposely making large, costly mistakes. You're going to do your best. But to think that you can go through something that large and complicated and not mess up a few times is is completely unrealistic. Yeah. Well, and that's why I recommend like, you know, one of the principles I always hit on is, you know, starting small. Yeah. Because then you limit, you limit your risk and loss exposure while you gain experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So so another concept that I, I like in the book that is kind of, it relates to a lot of other things is bulk buying and planning ahead. I'm kind of touching on the things that, that give advice or suggestions around buying first before we start looking at all the other alternatives. Uh, what are some of the things that you recommend that people analyze within their consumption that would be worth maybe buying in bulk or planning you know, well ahead to see if there could be some major savings in, in changing the way they purchase? Yeah, you know, so like for us, um, you know, we buy toilet paper in 60 count cases, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, because it's just like, and I have a barrel up in my barn Mm -hmm. Um, or, you know, sawdust. Um, I have a a local neighbor, great Amish guy has a sawmill and you can buy sawdust from him and it's like 20 bucks for a scoop of sawdust. So tons of people go get sawdust from him. And it always made me scratch my head because, you know, a lot of these people probably driving an hour or so total. And then you got to unload the sawdust Mm -hmm. by hand, you know, so you drive there. um, You have to get loaded with the sawdust and sometimes he's busy. So you might be waiting, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes before he can get to you. then, you know, you drive home and as you drive home, you always lose a bunch of sawdust on the way, even if you tarp it. And then you got to shovel that sawdust off your truck. And, you know, it's like, you know, what, three cubic yard of sawdust, maybe, you know, probably not even that much you can fit in the back of a truck. Right. Um, you know, it, so I can get, and it's like 20, 25 bucks. So once you factor in your time and everything, you're probably paying easily $50 or more for that little load of sawdust. Yeah. There's a, another sawmill in my area that will deliver to my farm a tri-axle load of sawdust, which I think is about 30 to 40 of my neighbor's scoops. 
and I will point to a spot and they will dump it in that spot and I will hand them $150. <laughs> so for three times the cost, I get back half a day and I get 30 to 40 times more sawdust. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, um, you know, there's, there's just a lot of things depending on what you need and when you need it and how you plan for it that you can get a larger quantity and it's not going to hurt you. It's only going to help you. Yeah. I mean, of course there's circumstances within that you got to have a place to put that much sawdust to begin with and know what you're going to do with it. But yeah, definitely. I mean, so I'm the oldest kid of five. And so I grew up in a seven person family as well. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I like, I learned from an early age that if you know you're going to use something, get a whole bunch of it all at once. There's, you know, time and money to be saved in, in looking further ahead. So oh, yeah. I yeah, mean, it's, it's like, just one of those basics. Yeah. We got a membership at Costco. Um, and Costco is actually like a surprisingly useful place for a homesteader. Oh, for sure. Um, I have, have everything. <laughs> so, well, what, what, you know, as a large family, like for us, cause you know, shoes are a massive expense. Mm. Um, and and so Costco will often have really great quality shoes for like $20 a pair. Um, and then they go on clearance for as little as like $14 or $10 a pair. I mean, you're talking like $10 a pair for name brand tennis shoes that if you go online are selling for like 70 and, you know, I have pictures of the back of our van where I have, you know, 25 pairs of shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're done growing, you're not going to grow out of them. Just get a bunch, right? Well, or with our kids, it's just like, all right, they're a size eight today. They'll probably be a size eight and a half in two weeks. They'll be a size nine. <laughs> seven weeks. And, and we'll just, we'll just buy up the shoe scale. Yep. Because um, if they don't grow into them, they're eventually going to get there. And, you know, it, it's, yeah. So, um, you know, taking advantage, you know, you, it basically just, you know, having good mental sense so you know how to plan and take advantage of things that can save you substantial amounts of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what about when it comes to food? I mean, obviously, you've got your high tunnel I would imagine you're producing a very significant portion of food on your farm, but I can't imagine you're going to the lengths of like growing and processing your own grains and certain things that just don't make any real sense to produce for yourself. When it comes to saving on food, between what you produce yourself and what you have to buy, what are some of those strategies that you found to, to save money? Oh, um, again, it's, it's all about, you know, bulk and timing. So, you know, um, grain, like we mill our own grains. Um, they're a lot more nutritious for you and you can get, you know, just store-bought carbohydrate products are often just a total disaster in terms of the sure. preservative, all the other stuff they put in them. Um, you know, How is so that we, process though? So you, you buy whole grains, obviously not milled and you have a mill at home? Yeah, we have a grain mill. Okay. And... It, what kind of a size mill is that for, for home use? Uh, it's small. Um, the one we have, I think it used to be called the family grain mill. Now it's called a Jupiter grain mill, maybe. 
or it might have been called the Jupiter. Now it's called the family grain mill. But I mean, we've had this grain mill, man, maybe 14 years we've had this thing. And I think the only repairs we've ever had to have done to it are replacing the milling head twice, you mm-hmm. know, because eventually a milling head, because of, you know, you're crushing stuff constantly, eventually it just wears down. Sure. Um, and, and so, like, we bought the grain mill, and then you just buy whatever grains you want to cook with. And we have some five gallon buckets that have these really cool specialty lids called gamma seal lids. Um, and we use the gamma seal lids for a bunch of stuff, you know, like we buy laundry detergent in 50 pound bags. We buy oxy bleach in 50 pound bags. Um, you know, cause all that stuff is like up to 50% cheaper. If you get it in a 25 or 50 pound size, mm. um, you know, so so you're talking if you have like, you know, eight things you buy that way that are all fifty percent cheaper, you just paid for the grain mill. <laughs> right, right. You know, and the buckets and stuff to store everything in. You know, so we have a you know, we have a set of buckets. Um and yeah, we just buy stuff um, you know, when it you know either when we need it or when it, you know, makes sense to buy it because it's on sale or whatever. Um, and yeah, you know, then we just, we mill the grain as we need it. Um, that's the awesome thing about whole grains is unlike flowers, which go rancid fairly quickly. Um, you know, grains will sit in a bucket in a cool, dark portion of your house or somewhere for a decade. Mm-hmm. And they'll be perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you do crush them and activate the oils inside, you do the you do that in a, a quantity that's small enough that you can use it before it goes rancid. Exactly. Yeah, like we're milling enough basically to make like what we're making that day or the next day. Yeah. Um, you know. So, yeah, so you know, you, you save money and you massively improve the nutritional value of what you're eating. So like when I used to buy things in large bulk too, I in a different living situation, I often use the savings for getting things in larger quantities to actually improve the quality of what I was buying as well. So it's like, all right, fine, I'm saving all this money. I'm actually going to put it into getting, you know, organic locally produced grains instead of just the cheapest grains that I can find because whichever way you end up doing it, the flour still comes out you know, half the price is if you had just bought the flour, regardless of it being a high quality or not. Oh yeah, exactly. You know, it's like with beef, um, the way we got a lot of people to originally join our buying club was telling them they would eat steak for the same price as ground beef. There you go. Yeah. Because when you buy a quarter of a cow, all your cuts are the same price. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if your quarter of a cow packaged final weight, you know, comes out to six fifty a pound, you're eating ribeye and sirloin for six fifty a pound, you know, grass fed, mm-hmm. local, fabulous beef. And, you know, we're actually, when, when we finish, my son was making steak for lunch today. Um, and so I'm going to go enjoy just like 
there's top of the line steak that was, you know, six, seven dollars a pound. Yep. <laughs> there's so many advantages to this. So, okay. So we, we kind of went over some food stuff. What about cleaning products, clothes? You mentioned uh, bleach and shoes. What other tactics do you have for getting kind of the, the day-to-day consumables that just, especially a family of your size, probably just mows through? Oh man, you know, so cleaning stuff, we make some of our own cleaners. Um, and then for a couple things we need, especially because of the elderberry syrup business, we just buy super concentrated stuff in bulk. Mm-hmm. You know, because like lots of companies now offer, you know, like a one gallon size of whatever that makes 10 gallons. Uh, you know, because like when you buy most cleaners, you're basically paying for like 90% water. Yeah, and sure. it's, super, it's super expensive to ship water around. You know, so why not just add water at home? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, or why not just buy the dry and other ingredients and make your own? Um, you know, so, um, you know, there is a fair bit of stuff we make ourselves. Um, you know, when it comes to clothes, we're really, you know, we're really fortunate that our area has a number of good thrift stores, a number of good um, sales and stuff that we can take advantage of. And again, Costco is an absolutely amazing place for clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I picked up like, I replaced all my jeans last year with like four identical pairs that were on sale at Costco. Um, and Finally, finally have jeans that don't have holes everywhere again. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I saw some great pictures about um, old jean material being turned into quilts from their from the book as well. Is that where they ended up? Yeah, you know, like some of my jeans got turned into quilts. Probably some got turned into arrow quivers um, for the kids' bows and arrows. Some got turned into draft dodgers um, to try and keep the draft out around a few of the drafty door areas. Oh yeah, and, yeah, I saw those too. Those are perfect. Yeah, you know, so it's man, and now I guess there's some companies that are taking old jeans and grinding them up and using them for house insulation. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that. I even have bought pencils that were made of like compressed old jean material. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So what they won't think of, huh? Anything yeah. to try and deal with our waste problems. Okay, so look, so we talked a ton about um, strategies for buying things that you're going to need regardless for, for less money. Let's talk about kind of the more difficult evaluation process and where you found the most sort of bang for your buck when it comes to time invested in self-sufficiency tasks. Things like uh, water systems or power, what is really worth putting the time in early on and getting set up correctly to save money and obviously more time down the line. Yeah. You know, any task that you have to do daily is, is crying out for evaluation for automation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so, so, this really was driven home to me a number of years ago where a group of homesteaders were discussing what they spent the most time on each week. And two of the main things I heard again and again was 
um, people spending time watering their animals and watering their gardens and people spending time weeding. Mm. And, and, you know, so two of my books, my one book, Winning the War on Weeds, is all about, you know, basically reducing the amount of time you spend weeding by as great a percentage as possible. And then, you know, Frugal Homesteader deals with reducing the amount of time you spend on those other two tasks. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, so like, you you know, um, you can buy all sorts of irrigation systems depending on what type of garden and growing space you're using. You know, or depending on your land and your setup, you could um, merely do rain catchment off your roof and then run some lateral hoses or pipelines or whatever from the rain catchment to your garden to automate and make, you know, watering easier. Um, you know, with animals, they like, I, I still hear about people carrying buckets of water to their animals. And I'm like, have you never heard of a hose? <laughs> <laughs> you know, cause it's just like, you know, like unless you're trying to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, there's just not a whole lot of return on investment doing that much needless manual labor. Yeah. And, you know, at a certain point, you're just going to get exhausted. And there's things like that that make people throw in the towel when, you know, they've got a lot going for them. They could continue on. But if you're just spending so much time on those types of tasks and, and are not thinking about how to do them more efficiently, more easily and recoup that time, because, I mean, Nobody gets into this wanting to work all the time. You want to enjoy some of what you've built and what you've uh, developed, but it's stuff like that that really gets in the way. Yeah, I, I, I'll say almost no one. I've met a few people over the years. <laughs> who, Fair enough. Who, There's a few in every group, right? Yeah, well, and, and the big thing is, you know, like I started judo a few years ago. I would love to attain a black belt in a mar- like. Um, you know, so one thing that always surprises people when they talk with our family about homesteading is like homesteading is part of what our family does, but it's not the only thing we do. Mm-hmm. And it's part of who we are, but it is not like who we are. Got it. Um, and so, you know, like there's just more to life. You know, I, I taught when I was, you know, speaking at some conferences last year, I saw a lot of light bulbs go off in audience members when I talked about, you know, like if your homestead means that you all never get to go to the beach, you never get to catch a movie if that's your thing. You don't get to do a sport or a martial art or whatever. Um, you know, even if you as an adult survive homesteading, I really doubt your children are going to want to continue with that lifestyle. Right. You know, so it's like we do judo. Um, I'll have done judo Friday, Saturday, and again tonight, theoretically. Um, So three days out of four, I'll have been on the mat getting to get some judo time in. Now that's a little rare. This Saturday was a special occasion. Um, But, you know, our homesteading, doesn't, you know, basically destroy all the other fun aspects of life because our homestead 
and then any businesses related to it, we're just always pushing for efficiency. Yeah, and I mean, you know, efficiency is something that can not only free up time, but make those tasks simpler. Um, and if you've got it kind of worked out into uh, a system, it also makes it easier to offload to somebody else if you have to, so that it doesn't bottleneck with one person. That's the one thing that I really learned when we were working on uh, the homestead in Guatemala before I moved out here is we made a real effort to kind of teach everybody else the systems in our groups so that in case someone else, you know, was unavailable for whatever reason, it didn't fall apart. There has got to be some redundancy in it as well. Yeah. Well, and that's one, another reason we want to move is, um, you know, the, the, the one irreplaceable thing is a person in any homestead system. Um, you know, there's just no way to replace you. Right. And, and but the problem is sometimes you have to be replaced, you know, cause like family members pass away, people give birth, you know, like, and having, having, you know, another homestead farm family who's really close by and, and who has, you know, similar experience and skill set is just invaluable. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, Cause like when, when we try and have people, you know, farm sit and homestead sit for us, especially when we used to have a lot more animals, you're reminded very quickly um, that there, there's a, a presidential candidate in the past few days who basically said something really disparaging about farming, you know, basically that, you know, this farming stuff doesn't take a lot of mental gray matter. Mm. Um, and, and I'm like, I'm like, I want you to come farm sit for me for a few days. Yeah. Right. Let's see how you do it. Cause if you perform like almost any other people we've had come farm sit, my phone's going to be ringing all the time while I'm trying to take a vacation because mm -hmm. you discover real quickly that like, Oh, this isn't quite as simple as I thought it was. Mm -hmm. For sure. So. Yeah. Anytime you're dealing with living systems, I mean, <laughs> the amount of things, the variables of things that could go wrong or change or really throw off what you thought you had, you know, well ordered or whatnot, it, it just goes through the roof. I mean, even plants themselves are are difficult and, and can change, you know, without without being able to foresee it. Then you add in, you know, all the other elements, especially animals, and it's like, whoa, <laughs> you really yeah. got to know your systems. Oh, also, yeah. look, so there's a couple of other really kind of bang for your buck strategies that you go into pretty decent depth in in the book, and the two that I really uh, kind of caught on with are plant propagation and natural medicine. Can you talk a little bit about uh, these two and kind of the benefits that you get from learning how to do them for yourself, not just in saving money, but the options that open up when this is something that you integrate in with your lifestyle? Yeah, so you know, buying plants, if, if, if you're gonna grow your own food, um, now, you know, on the one hand, buying plants is cheap for a lot of plants that produce a lot of food. So at the end of the day, if you can't, you know, propagate your own tomatoes from seed, 
it's totally worth it to buy a $2.50 tomato plant from a great farmer. No doubt. No debate. Um, but at the same time, you know, you could just save a bucket of money propagating your own plants, um, both annuals and perennials. So it's just, and a lot of plants, you know, just love to be propagated. A lot of herb plants, like, you know, um, I'm trying to think of ones like oregano and other things you can take cuttings of and mints and things. You know, th these are things that just love to be propagated. Um, you know, we are one bathroom this time of year. I'm actually looking through the door into the bathroom off the office of the house. And my wife and I were joking the other day that the aloe in that bathroom is going to like completely overtake the house at the rate <laughs> it's growing. Because you know, we started with like one aloe plant and now like these pots contain like 20 some aloe plants and all these aloe <laughs> plants need split into additional pots because they all, you know, have little runners and stuff. And so, um, yeah, so propagation is just totally an area um, that, and it's, it's a lot of fun to get into propagation, especially if you have kids. Mm. Oh yeah. That's a great activity for even young children. It's not super complicated. They get to get kind of messy and there's quite a room for error. It takes a little patience. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so propagation is, is just a great one. And, and then it opens up to you, you know, options for selling all sorts of plants, um, to people who don't want to get involved in propagation, you know, so, so that that's, but generally in the area we live, um, there's just, you know, everybody has great, great plant sales because mm -hmm. uh, there's just so much demand. And, you know, th there is a lot of people who just don't have the time or don't want to, you know, create a setup that lets them do propagation. Uh, you know, even, you know, that's the be like aloes, the house plant on top of a homestead plant. You know, so there's tons of people in the city who want aloe plants all the time. And they'd rather buy it, you know, from a farmer with a, there, there's people who want to buy things, you know, from a homesteader, from a farmer rather than from a big box store. And you could be that person. Yeah, increasingly, increasingly. And so what about natural medicine? You've gotten to the point where the elderberry syrup is a big part of your farm enterprise. Um, what are some of the other ones that you recommend that people look into for their ease and utility? Oh man, you know, so, um, so we got, we have five kids and when our first daughter was born, we still lived up in the city of Louisville and we took her in for one of those ridiculous well baby checkups, um, where basically you're taking a healthy person to the place that all the sick people go. Cause that just makes a world of sense. Um, and, you know, we're in, we're in the office with the doctor. Doctor's like, oh, she's doing great. And he goes, he goes, now, I know you all are kind of like, I don't know if he used the word crunchy people. Um, <laughs> I can't remember the word he used. You know, maybe say like, you know, you're kind of like naturally minded people or whatever. He goes, he goes, but I just want to tell you as your doctor, um, sometime in the next year or so, she's going to get an earache. She's going to get a really bad runny nose or blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to need to prescribe her an antibiotic. 
because um, that's just how this works. And, you know, like, um, you don't want to fight with your doctor. Of course. No. Um, and so we just nod and smile. And now our five children are approaching somehow, even though they are our children. Um, <laughs> like, they've lived a, a combined sum total of, like, 45 years. And we have yet to ever use an antibiotic. Now, That's very fortunate. Um, you know, now obviously if we needed an antibiotic where it was very clear that we actually needed one of them to have an antibiotic, we would not hesitate to give them, you know, an antibiotic. Um, but at the same time, there are just a host of strategies that will keep you from ever needing those things. Mm -hmm. If you have a lick of sense and if you plan ahead. Um, you know, so some of them are things like iodine <laughs> and, you know, we have really good medical kits on our homestead, um, so that when you get cuts, when you get scraped up, you can deal with it, you know, and not get to the point where you get an infection. Um, so, and, you know, some of these things are herbal things, you know, uh, or, uh, you know, we keep around good quality vitamin C and other supplements and things, um, you know, magnesium, vitamin C and stuff. We keep around herbal things like elderberry um, and, and other plants and things and colloidal silver and, and, you know, and garlic oil for treating occasional earaches and hot water bottles, you know, to help promote drainage, you know, small hot water bottles that you can hold right below the ear. Um, mm -hmm. you know, so the natural medicine part, it, it requires you to basically, you know, slowly develop a set of skills, um, and a set of understanding of how you kind of like stack different treatments. Um, you know, but one of the big things I always tell people though, that the biggest key, the, the biggest key to natural remedies is rest. Um, we just live in a culture and time where people get sick and they all want to push through, you know? So you, you go, you go into church or work or wherever and somebody who basically belongs in an ICU is like hawk, hacking up a lung on everybody, oh, yeah. you know, or, you know, little Johnny threw up this morning, but he seemed fine three hours later. And here they are at school, <laughs> you know, and you're, and you're just like, you know, I don't believe in the death penalty, but some people test my patience. <laughs> um, so, cause I'm just like, what are you thinking? You know? And, and so a big yeah, thing is really more important. Yeah. And so one big thing I always tell people though, with natural remedies is nothing is a replacement for rest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You got a fever. Yeah take elderberry, take colloidal silver or whatever is appropriate based on your fever and symptoms and then lay down with a book or a book on tape or, you know, and, and rest, let your body rest. Um, because just, there is no replacement for sleep and rest. And we are a society, especially in America that is chronically depriving ourselves of both. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Well, there it is. I mean, so it, it, as much as this book is about frugal tips on homesteading and, and how to save money and do things for yourself, it really does kind of boil down to that. It's like, we have the ability, we have the knowledge, if we take the time to cultivate it, to, to really take much more control of our lives, our well-being, our, our, our livelihoods, our education. So many of these things that because of the way that our society is set up and how many of us have grown up, we've just learned to outsource and pay for. And I love the kind of underlying philosophy of this just being that you can regain that independence through the cultivation of these skills and realizing that even though we've been taught sort of to look at things as, well, how, how convenient can we make them by outsourcing them or paying for them to be done for us? It's not really a loss of time if you're learning things in the process, if you're, you know, um, if you're working outside, if you're doing all of these other things that we've kind of been taught to, to avoid. There's a richness in the process that can bring a lot more than just independence, but kind of just how our bodies were meant to be used, how our minds were meant to be challenged. Uh, Like there's benefits at every turn for working more on, on general independence uh, in our lives. Oh yeah. Well, it's like today, you know, I got to hike outside. I probably got cut up a month's worth of firewood, um, you know, and I, you know, like when, when you go work a job that pays you, you then have to pay all the taxes on that work and then you can buy your heat. When I go hike today and hike around my farm with my kids and get pictures of them climbing trees and doing other fun stuff and we cut up wood for firewood, nobody takes a cut thankfully at this point. Um, And, and, you know, that's a big thing you need to begin to understand is, you know, self-production, you you don't lose 20 to 30% of your labor to taxes. Right, right. Um, You know, so there's, you can live with less because it costs less to live. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it was uh, Joel Salatin who also did the foreword for your book who talks about that a lot too. I've heard interviews with him. I've interviewed him for this show. And the value of something that doesn't have to go through intermediaries, be processed through governments, and just for doing it the way that they set up is more than just the value of you know, what you might get paid for the time. It's also without all of those extra you know, gleanings from the system when you just do it for yourself. Yeah, everybody has a hand in the cookie jar. So all this <laughs> Oh man, I'm learning that here in Spain too. Like I'm all for having some, you know, sensible government programs. And I think it's fantastic that they have single payer uh, healthcare and so many other services and, and, you know, reasonable costs for, for education. But then you also realize just how robust the bureaucracy is too. And, you know, I can see how people can criticize it from both sides. It's uh, there's tons of benefits, but there's a lot of compromises that you get with those as well. Yeah. It's a new system yeah. to get used to. Oh, I'm sure. I just could not could not imagine what it would be like going from Guatemala to Spain. <laughs> and I mean, that was after South Korea, Australia. I mean, <laughs> I haven't really lived in the United States for almost 15 years. I've made a few stops to uh, to do some work. Like I used to work in uh, shipping as an engineer and stuff. But 
I've mostly lived <laughs> abroad and like just getting used to new systems every time. Oof. <laughs> it's exhausting. I'm really hoping that this is the last place I try and put down roots. <laughs> but hey, so uh, within that, we're getting short on time. Um, there's so much more detail than what we were able to cover, of course, in this podcast. I really encourage people to pick up the book. Um, but before you go, can you tell us a little bit more about how people can reach out to you and learn about the other work you do, like the Whole Life Buying Club, Stedder.com, and the Stedder community that you help to cultivate, and the other books that you have to offer? Yeah. So, you know, whole life, if you're in the Louisville area, you know, Louisville, Kentucky in the States, um, you know, the buying club is just Louisville whole life. We have a webpage on the internet, great community of hundred, 150 families who just, you know, want to directly support farms, artisans, and other businesses. Um, you, you know, so the buying club added heart at its heart, tries to cut out as many middlemen as possible um, when it comes to, you know, getting farmers, consumers, and homesteaders to directly transact. Um, so that that's always been a lot of fun. Um, one thing since you mentioned Joel, um, it, you know, Joel and I just did a conference together called the Rogue Food Conference. Nice. Um, so remind me, I'll, I'll drop you a note once the recordings are available from the event. Um, oh, fantastic. Yeah, it's still going to be a minute before this episode comes out. So if you send me links to those, I'll be sure to put them on the show notes for this episode as well. Right. Yeah. And so the Rogue Food Conference was just amazing. But it was all about, you know, creative strategies for farmers and those involved with food um, to get around the regulations that make it so hard, at least in the States to be profitable and to directly interact with, you know, consumers and end users of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so that's fun. And then my personal website is johnwmoody.com. Um, so you can contact me there. I have a Facebook page, which um, you can find me on Facebook. And then our elderberry business is known as Abby's elderberry. And so we're on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and then I'll be at the Mother Earth News Fairs in the States this year. I'm going to be headlining um, Layman's, which is the really big homesteading store in Ohio. I'm going to be headlining their fall festival um, and doing some other conferences and events over the year. So if, if you're a listener and are going to be at one of those events, you know, grab me and say, hey, I heard you talk with Oliver. <laughs> yeah. There you go. I'm going to send you some more people. Definitely reach out. It sounds like these are all going to be really exciting events. I'm glad you've got such a, a busy calendar and uh, such great outreach to the community. Um, yeah, this, this year is going to be, yeah, this year is going to be especially, I think we have five or six events I'm doing across the country. Nice. So. Well, send me any links to those that you've got. I'll be sure to, uh, to put them in the show notes, like I said. And man, John, it's such a pleasure talking to you. I'm really glad we were able to connect. Great. Well, thank you for having me. So I hope, you know, I'd say have a good day, but where you are, it's probably getting on towards evening. So I hope you enjoy your evening. <laughs> thank you so much. All right. Uh, we'll be in touch again soon. I'd love to do a follow-up and definitely keep me posted. If you end up getting a new place, I would love to hear more about that process. Oh yeah. That's, <laughs> there'd be a lot to talk about. <laughs> I'm sure. All right, John, thanks so much and take care. You too. Bye. 
All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.